the August 2019 podcast for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. My name is Dr. Kelly Tappenden. I am editor-in-chief of JPEN and also professor and head at the University of Illinois at Chicago in the Department of Kinesiology and Nutrition. We're going to be talking about feeding intolerance and trauma patients today. This is such an important problem, one that a lot of clinicians struggle with identifying what are the indicators of feeding intolerance, how often does it happen, and if we know what the problems are, maybe we can look at trying to try and deal with them proactively and therefore enable enteral nutrition. So I've invited Dr. Karen Urai, on behalf of her colleagues, uh, her author group, who are presenting a paper entitled The Incidence and Effects of Feeding Intolerance in Trauma Patients that appears in the August 2019 issue of JPEN. Welcome, Dr. Urai. Thank you. Hello. So you obviously were interested in, in intestinal function as it responds during trauma or acute illness. What was your specific interest in, in trying to understand this problem? And your authors, what's the background there that, that got you working on this? I mean, I've uh, looked at gastrointestinal motility in animal models, and they were trauma postoperative ileus models, but I was a little frustrated because there was nothing in the literature that really showed the incidence, the overall incidence of feeding intolerance in trauma patients. So there's, there's studies in subsets of patients, but there was no good study that I could cite that showed the incidence of feeding intolerance in trauma patients overall. So that was the impetus right, to start good. the study. So how did you go about uh, identifying then feeding intolerance or the motility issues in trauma mm -hmm. patients that are human? Um, we have a great trauma center at the uh, University of Texas Medical School in Houston, uh, led by John Holcomb and Charlie Wade. And they had already started a prospective study of trauma patients. They already had a database that I could start from. And from the database, I took a, a group of 200 patients and started just uh, collecting the data from the medical records on whether they had feeding intolerance or not. And the first thing I noticed was I started out just looking at patients with ileus, but I noticed that when you're looking at their abdominal symptoms of abdominal distension or constipation or nausea, there, there was probably a lot more patients that were not necessarily identified as having feeding intolerance just based on the gastric residual volumes or the ileus. So then I started looking more at the kind of trying to decide how would you identify patients with feeding intolerance. And it doesn't seem to be uh, very well um, determined. Uh, you know, that's, that's an excellent point. I've, um, I've looked at this literature too, and there's some interesting work out of Adam Dean's group in Australia, but it's very hard to identify what are the symptoms that indicate the patient is intolerant and for nutrition. So how did you define feeding intolerance? Um, I started out just looking at the 
a strict definition of the number of days to reach the feeding goal. And the feeding goal was set by the hospital nutritionist and identified patients as having feeding intolerance if they, they took more than uh, three days to reach their feeding goal. So that was a like kind of a fairly stringent way to say these patients actually had feeding intolerance. But that doesn't solve the problem of how to identify patients before they before they reach that point, you know, the patients who are starting to be uh, stressed early. And also looking at reaching feeding goals only, feedings are withheld when they reach a, a gastric residual volume of more than 500. So that means that they're going to develop feeding. By that definition of more than three days to reach feeding goal, they're going to develop feeding intolerance just based on the gastric residual volume because feeds will be held if their gastric residual volume is more than 500 for more than two uh, cycles. Does that make sense? <laughs> it actually does make sense. I think uh, when, when I think about this or talk to individuals about feeding intolerance, there's two different ways of looking at it. I think clinicians are defining it as insufficient energy and protein provision, the fact that they aren't right. able to provide these to their patients. You know, as a GI physiologist, though, I also think when it comes to feeding intolerance, we should be thinking about what those pathophysiological responses are that are preventing feeding. However, right. that's going to underlie our end goal, which is, is preventing that feeding. Uh, so I think what you've done is very consistent with the literature. Tell me, the dietitians that you worked with, did they use a standardized algorithm then for increasing their feeds, uh, assessing needs? Was, was that done carefully? Because if the needs were assessed differently, um, that could, in fact, limit whether or not right, someone right, was right. able to meet their goals, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have an algorithm, or they have a flow chart, kind of a yes-no flow chart of when to hold feeds. Gastric, and it's based on gastric residual volume. So it's a protocol that they follow. Okay, very good. So tell us what you did. What were your methods? So first I divided patients just based on the days to reach feeding goals. That's a strict definition of these patients definitely had feeding intolerance and these patients didn't. And then looked at different outcomes, length of hospital stay, readmissions, ICU stays, and... Um, infectious complications and thromboembolic com complications. And so, and, and I wasn't very, you know, so just defining feeding intolerance as days to reach the feeding goal wasn't really that satisfactory to me. It didn't seem to divide the patients very well. Um, so then I divided the patients again. So I was trying to think of how would you define feeding intolerance better? So I, I divided the patients either by uh, gastric residual volume of less than or more than 500, or by the number of GI symptoms of either greater than two GI symptoms or less than two GI symptoms. So, and then um, when I did this, it seemed to separate out the patients who had longer hospital stays and uh, longer or more complications, much better based on the GI symptoms than on gastric residual volume, which was what the hospital was using. Okay, that's very interesting. Tell us a little more about those results. 
So if you divide patients just based on gastric residual volume alone, the total calorie deficit, the protein deficits weren't significantly different. And the, the time to feeding goal was not even significantly different. But remember, this is retrospective study, so those patients may have been, you know, treated differently. So that's a complication of doing a retrospective study. But the total calorie deficits were, were not different, and the protein deficits were not different. Um, the length of hospital stay and the ICU stays were different, but they didn't have um, increased complications. But if you divided the patients based on GI symptoms, which included gastric residual volume, but also included uh, ileus, documented ileus, abdominal distension, nausea, vomiting, constipation, then it seemed to divide the patients much better into those that were going to develop complications and those that didn't. So in this case, when you divided based on GI symptoms, which included the gastric residual volume, then you had a much bigger difference in length of stay, length of ICU stay. Um, they had more uh, higher readmission rates in the next year. They had um, increased infectious complications, increased thromboembolic complications, increased sepsis, and they also had a significant difference in the calorie deficits and protein deficits. Would it be fair to say then that these symptoms of GI intolerance as opposed to gastric residual volume and the number of symptoms was predictive of later increased complications associated with that? Is it predictive? Yeah. I mean even based on GI symptoms, I, I did a correlative study for how well either the gastric residual volume or the GI symptoms predicted the time defeating goal or the calorie deficit. And neither of them was a very good uh, predictor. So the R-square values were fairly low for those. But the GI symptoms still had an effect size that was higher than the gastric residual volume. So, but I think that we can do much better than that. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk about this in terms of the current critical care guidelines that are available. Mm -hmm. We know we have some from Canada, from Eston, um, the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, and Aspen. Um, they're all relatively recent, and all of those, except for Aspen, do recommend gastric residual monitoring. Uh, but the Aspen right. guidelines, which are evidence-based, do not. Um, can, can you comment on why, you know, three of these societies do feel that we should be measuring gastric residuals, uh, but Aspen does not? And based on your data, what do you recommend? Um, I think that you shouldn't consider gastric residual volume only but you should consider it in combination with other abdominal, other symptoms of decreased uh, gastrointestinal motility, like abdominal distension or, or vomiting and nausea. So, and, and I think that the, the reason hospitals want to use gastric residual volume, because that's a number, and it's not as subjective as asking a patient, you know, do they feel nausea? Or they might not be reporting necessarily how they feel and the nurses are evaluating the GI symptoms, so it's kind of a subjective way of, of diagnosing feeding intolerance. 
All right, so your recommendation is to include gastric residual values, but only as one of the number, one of the possible symptoms of GI intolerance uh, that can be included. So um, the number of symptoms, basically, vomiting, right. regurgitation, diarrhea, bowel distension, right. bowel sounds yeah. are something mm -hmm. that's often measured. Um, and gastric increased gastric residual volume would simply be another one to put on the list, but should not be any more important than those others. Exactly. Is that what your data yeah. uh, mm -hmm. indicates? Yeah. Yes. Okay. What will you do next? I, I'm I'm interested in trying to find a better possible biomarker or prediction to predict which patients will develop uh, feeding intolerance. Because if we start, if we if they're already developed feeding intolerance and they're already having problems, they are going to have bowel distension, so that the bowel is already damaged and and it's going to take longer to recover. So it would be it would be very interesting to be able to predict which patients which trauma patients will develop feeding intolerance. And I think also having a better way of diagnosing feeding intolerance is very important for the development of new prokinetics because the prokinetics we have now are not very good. And in order for, for uh, drug companies to test new prokinetics, they need a better way of deciding which patients to treat and which patients not to treat. Thank you for that. You know, I do share your vision here where we will be able to systematically manage feeding intolerance by looking and recognizing the gastrointestinal dysfunction that's there, because then we can monitor and treat that dysfunction, reduce the feeding tolerance, and enable, optimize the enteral nutrients that that, that patient needs, which we know are associated with better outcomes. Um, I, I also think that there's been such a focus on gastric motility and residual volume, but there's many other functions of the intestine that we need to be thinking about. Digestion and absorption, endocrine functions, motility, microbiota, right. cell-mediated mm -hmm. immunity, the enteric nervous system, barrier function. We could go on and on. And the evidence indicates that many of these these aspects of gastrointestinal function are altered during trauma. Um, so, right. so I'm I'm grateful for your work, and um, I'll look forward to to following what you do next. Thank so, you. Thank you very much for joining me. For our JPEN readers, please go to the August issue to read Dr. Urai's paper uh, entitled "The Incidence and Effects of Feeding Intolerance in Trauma Patients." Thank you very much. Thank you.